It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Ryan Meeks, and after years of trying to make life work as a struggling artist, independent filmmaker, and musician, I thought to myself, hey, self, wouldn't it be helpful to ask other artists how they're finding their path in this world? And so now, that's exactly what I'm doing on a bi-weekly basis. Welcome to the Path of Art. Welcome to the Path of Art. I'm Ryan Meeks, and today we have a filmmaker from L.A., his name is Mali Bonner. Now, he has made a film recently. Um, was it last year that you made the film? Yeah, well, it came out in 2021, which was, you know, just last year. And, and so I went to a release of it, uh, not a release, a screening of it this year. So it was a film about an African-American pioneer that came across uh, with the LDS Church and all the stuff that he helped with. The, to to get them here to winter quarters and and uh, even when settling in the valley it was a fascinating film um but also Mally you're a musician right I am yeah that's my background music so uh do you write for your family I know your family like your family is has a lot of music behind them your family does things I know your your brother uh you have a brother that's a producer you have a brother that that does some of his own singing so your uh, your music is. Do you write a lot for your family, and uh, what else do you do with it? Well, okay. So my so I live in Los Angeles, and you know my job is preparing pop artists and other recording artists, uh, getting them ready for their recording sessions. So, so their album recordings. So I'll be in the studio. I'm the guy saying, "Do it again, do it again, sing it better," type thing. And then I also get them ready for their live shows and tours. So determining what the order of their set is going to be. And then I also write music as well. And so um, in Los Angeles, it's artists like uh, Camila Cabello and Ariana Grande, uh, Stevie Wonder right now working on his gospel album. So stuff like that. That's amazing. And so what yeah. what title would that be? Is that a producer title or is it uh, like, what is that? It, it varies. They call me a vocal director. So it's like anything that has to do with the voice, um, then, I, then I'm in. You know, so it just depends on the artist and what they need. So you also mentioned that you're a songwriter. So what uh, what uh, what do you call yourself? Is it just under Mally? Is that is that what your artist name is? Yeah, well, so I don't even see myself as an artist, even though on the soundtrack for the Green Flake movie, I'm singing the songs, but I develop artists. And so they my title is vocal director. So I prepare other artists for their shows, tours and whatever else, you know, so uh, artists, please help me know. I don't want, I'm not that guy. <laughs> when you watch the film, the people that are listening, when you watch it, the soundtrack's amazing. Like you've got a great voice wow. and, and the music just is phenomenal. It, it really takes the film to another level. And Thank so, you so much. And so what, I mean, you, you decided that you needed to make this film. I mean, um, what, what kind of prompted that? Yeah, it was 
you know, the B1 celebration. So that was the church put on this uh, celebration of the 40th anniversary of the priesthood being given to all men or the priesthood ban being lifted. Right. And this is in 2018. And our family was asked to sing the Bonner family. And so at that uh, celebration at this, um, they, they had like uh, different snippets of history lessons of different black pioneers, early black pioneers. And it was some people I'd heard of, Elijah Abel, I'd heard of him, I know a little bit about him, priesthood, yeah, Jane Manning James, yes, I know that. But then there was other people, Green Flake, who I'd never heard of. And then to hear that there were enslaved members of the church, um, it just, it kind of shook me that I didn't know these things and I felt like, my goodness, I need, I, I should know these things. Me being black in the church... I should know this so that I can help answer some of the tough questions that do come my way. And so that kind of sparked something in me to make sure that I knew everything I could know. So I met with historians and, you know, they send me books and journal entries and reading quickly turned into writing. And over the next month, I had 200 pages and 10 songs. And that's when I was like, oh, my gosh, I think this is a movie. And so you wrote, did you write the songs thinking that it would be a movie or did you just get inspired to write these songs and then it became correct in your mind that this would be a film? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question because I had never thought about making a film. I'd never went to school for film. Never. I just like going to the movies just like everybody else. But during the process of me learning about the history, writing music was my outlet because it was heavy stuff. You know, it was emotional things I was learning. And so I was just writing music as therapy. And so it really wasn't until near the end of that month. Um, and I was l literally barely sleeping because I just wanted to get back into it and reading and writing. And it wasn't until near the end that I realized I had a body of work that needed to be told on film. So did that, does that shift your focus from what you are as a uh, voice director uh, to being a filmmaker now? Yeah, I mean, I, people said, uh, okay, we'll see if you catch the bug. And I was like, catch the bug? What is that? And then I caught the bug. The filmmaking bug yeah, or something? it got me yeah. back. So <laughs> it, it definitely is a big part of what I'm going to be doing moving forward for sure. Because I did realize that um, making a movie is a hard thing. And it takes a lot of work. But even still, it was something I was very capable of doing. So this big, hard thing I've never done before, I was able to do it and do it quickly. And I thought, OK, it, it came naturally. And I wanted to now spend more time in this space. And so I'm doing that. So that's that must be pretty amazing being a voice director for for people like Stevie Wonder and Camilla Cabello. I mean, I mean, what like what what is your day to day like on that? Yeah, I mean. Each artist is different, you know, so for Camila, it was from the beginning of her career. So right after she did the X Factor and was in this group, Fifth Harmony, my job was to make sure that the group can sound as good as they can sound and make sure that the order of the show is something that vocally they can handle. And then and then I did, I wrote one song for Fifth Harmony while they're in a group. And then Camila went on and did her solo thing. And then Stevie Wonder... It's different. It's not for his shows or tours or, or anything else, but I'm writing music for him. He actually heard songs from the Green Flake movie before it came out, and that's when he reached out to me. Yeah. And so that, so that was 
a really special thing to sit there and talk to Stevie Wonder about early black pioneers in the church and then write music, you know? So it, it turned into a, a, a an opportunity for you to write more music. It did. Yeah, it did. And so, and so what is, I mean, what is that like writing music for, for Stevie? Are you writing it with him? Is it like a, a joint thing or are you writing it for him to, to add stuff to? How, how is that working? Yeah, it's, it's with, it's with, I mean, he has a plethora of ideas, you know, so we'll spend time talking and, and talking about black history in America, talking, talking about black history in the church, talking about our beliefs. We just kind of spend time, you know, talking, and then it'll go into an idea that he has and he'll get, pull out an instrument that he just picked up in Japan and he mastered it within weeks. And so now he's playing this new instrument and this idea. And then my job is to kind of take this idea and formulate it into a structured song. And, um, and so I just kind of try to grab the ideas as he's pumping them out because he's brilliant, a genius, you know. And so I just try to organize them and create a structured song. Are there any similarities, do you think, between songwriting and filmmaking? I come, I come from a background of, of music as well. My dad was a musician, and it, I, I'm nowhere on any level that's known at all. But I've been writing music for a long time. And, and what are some similarities that you see between songwriting and uh, creating a film? Well, I'll say, first off, the intangible similarities are that you just feel comfortable. Like for me to be someone who's never been to film school, who's never thought of directing or writing a film, to be able to do that, get on set and be comfortable directing people, that has to connect to my experiences in music. And so my music experience is helping other artists be their most authentic self. So helping performers be their most believable self to their audience. And so that translates right into directing. You know, as I'm working with actors, making sure that they are their most natural self on camera. So that felt easy. And then with songwriting, you know, I'll sit down with an artist and we'll spend a half a day together just talking about them and what this song is going to be about. And then getting it all into this two and a half, three and a half minutes. Um, I found that with the film, I have more time to tell the story. That's easier for me than making the whole story fit in this three and a half minute thing. And I, and I don't have to rhyme and the, there's no melody. So it was just, it, it came naturally. I would say there's, there's a type of thematic rhyming that happens, you know, with foreshadowing and whatnot. So there's some, there's some similarities between them that are, that are very strong. Uh, but yeah, you definitely have a lot more time. <laughs> so uh, where, whereas songwriting, I, I think the stories are kind of, they're a little bit more abstract because of that, would you say? Yeah, I mean, you just you 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 have to take somebody. You have to first of all, you have to get them invested so early on in the song. Within those first few seconds, you know, with film, you have minutes to draw them in. You have seconds with the song, and then take them short through a short journey, without letting them feel like you just dropped them off somewhere. There has to be a beginning and an end in this three-minute window, and so. Yeah, elaborating on that into writing a film, it's wonderful. It's incredible to be able to draw a whole character out and take someone through that journey. It's been an incredible experience. Yeah, and and so when you were writing these songs about Green Flake, 
Um, were you writing them kind of as each song was kind of a part of his life? And that's kind of what led it into a film story? No, it was like, yeah, it, it, the, the songs were um, the emotional journey I was going through at the time. So what I was feeling like as I was reading this letter that talked about Green Flake, you know, from because because when we're talking about early black pioneers, there's not especially enslaved pioneers. You're not going to have anything written. You know, they would be they, their life would be terrible for them had they been caught writing or reading. You know, and so you don't have journals and letters from these enslaved pioneers. So I'm reading journal entries from other pioneers, free pioneers, white pioneers, right? And you're catching pieces of names and then putting these stories together. It was like it was like putting this Tetris puzzle together, weaving these stories of letters and censuses to create what his life was. And so it was just a, a fascinating, fascinating journey. So what kind of uh what kind of reception have you received from this film? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I was nervous after making the film because I thought, well, black people are going to love it or and white people are going to hate it or white people are going to love it and black people are going to hate it or church folks are going to love it and non-members are going to hate it or vice versa. I just thought it was going to be one or the other on and I, I didn't know how it was going to fall. And um it was just it I'm still so surprised, but I'm also not surprised because the spirit of the film, it has connected with everyone, with my black brothers and sisters, my white brothers and sisters, members, non-members. You know, I released it to film festivals outside of Utah. I didn't release it in Utah to any of the Utah film festivals. So it was Los Angeles and Rome and Istanbul and London, and it won best film in all of those film festivals. And so you have thousands of films and Green Flake, his name is Green Flake, was winning best film. And that was fascinating to me that this story of, of quote unquote Mormon culture was able to transcend religion and connect with just humanity. And so uh, it did the same thing for, with members of the church. They connected with it as well. So it's been so well received. That's amazing. Have, have you gotten any questions about the church since since this has gone out it, it didn't go out you know in like you said you didn't go to any festivals in Utah but at the other festivals did that bring you know people to ask you questions about the church it did it did you know this is the tricky part and uh, i mean no one's ever asked that question so i appreciate you asking that it it, it was this film was released in the height of racial tensions. This is, you know, post George Floyd. So this is 20 late 2020s when it was started going into film festivals. Right. And so you have folks who want justice across the board looking for it, you know. And so uh, if you can imagine non-members of the church are like, I knew it. Those Mormon folks in the Mormon church. And there was so that is that the and I was like then I had to explain. Well, no, it's not the Mormon Church enslaving people. It was people in the church. We're talking about American history and slavery. Yeah, slave, yeah. And so this is these are people who were American who were also converted to the church. 
So it it didn't slavery did not end with religion. There were Christians, non-Christians that were engaging in this practice and it didn't change when they were members of the church and so yes, you do have members who were enslaving other members and whatever else and so it helped educate about American history, it helped educate about our church history and where we were and how far we've come and that's the hard part is if we don't talk about where we came from then we can't even celebrate or acknowledge how far we've come. Instead, we we're just looking at all of the worst parts of where we are today. You know, and yes, we should look at it and continue to push forward, but how can we gauge how far we've come if we don't tell the hard stories from the past? And and I think a a good indicator was the unveiling of those statues uh at, at this is the place. And I think that your film had a big part to play in that. And uh yeah. do you and and that's that's kind of why that screening happened was because it was to help commemorate that was was that part of the reason that for the second screening this year well not initially you know it, initially making the film i just wanted it out there and then after it was doing so great in film festivals it was just I'm like oh my gosh this is incredible let's get a picture by the monuments you know is what i was thinking and because i'm from I'm here in California, and I know that Utah loves its monuments. I'm like, I'm sure I just assumed that there were monuments of these black pioneers that came in Green Flake, 19-year-old enslaved pioneer who drove the first wagon. Surely there's a statue of him. And I wanted to get a selfie with the cast and the crew, and that's when I learned that there wasn't. And so, and this was in 2021. And so that's when I realized that every penny of profit had to go towards... um, changing that, rectifying that, making sure that there was representation of these black pioneers. And so the film was the catalyst to leading to that monument dedication. I think that's a huge thing to, to push forward is that recognition of these pioneers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and of course, I mean, the film was a small piece of what was needed to be raised to make those monuments because they're incredible. So there were some really amazing philanthropic people that were like let's do this and they made sure that it was going to be the best that it could be and it is it's just absolutely stunning so we're going to take a quick break here we've learned a lot about Mali and some of the great work that he's doing Uh, when we come back we're going to talk about his past and just how he's journeyed how he's come along this path of art in his own way we'll be right back Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to The Path of Art. We're here with Mally Bonner, and we've gone over his film Green Flake and his music career. And now I'd like to just dive into how you got started in, in your creative path. Yeah, I mean, well, so I come from a musical family. Um, I have seven siblings, so there's four boys and four girls. And my mom uh, was the gospel choir director. Um, even though she was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, she grew up in a Baptist church. So she was the soloist and the director of the choir in the Baptist church and also coming to bringing us to the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. And we were doing both. So we came from both worlds. Oh, wow. And so music. Yeah. Yeah. Music has always been such a big part of our lives. And so that was at a very, very young age. And so I couldn't get away from it if I tried. Uh, but so but it wasn't until I came to L.A. that I realized that I could utilize what my mom had taught me as a child with, with the voice. Cause we, we learned how to teach. We learned everything about the voice and how it works. I had no idea I was going to use that until I came to Los Angeles and was able to help other artists. And so then management companies and, and record labels would reach out to me to do just that. And film, like I, I mentioned earlier, it was not on my radar at all. And even, even, uh, so we were going to film. Um, it was the day before. We're about to do the first uh, the, the first uh, day on set, and I go to lay down, and I had just finished, had like maybe three hours of rest to get in. We got the locations, the crew, the cast. Okay, great. Hotels booked. Paperwork signed. Okay, cool. I'm about to lay down, and then I was like, Oh no, I didn't book a director, and I had forgotten out of all the things to book a director. And so I wasn't planning on directing until the day before. And so I, I, I mean, I, I did what everybody else does. All this, this young generation go on YouTube, YouTube. Yep. <laughs> so I went on, yeah, went on YouTube, when to say action, when to say cut. And so I'm looking at the, okay, got it. Yeah. Rolling camera. Got it. You know? So I get on set and I'm just a fish out of water. I'm not sure what's happening until action. And then I, then it was like I was home. I knew exactly what to do. It's incredible. Did anything else that, you know, growing up, um, you know, with what your mom taught you and, and even in being in that duality of, of the two different churches, I mean, I mean, in, in general, like, uh, you know, I, I think people get along, but um, was there, uh, was there anything did, that came out of that, that, that helped you um, grow your, your, your career in, in the sense of uh, just like, you know, learning how to, you know, to deal with diverse environments. I think you nailed it right, right there. Di- learning to, diver- to, to navigate diverse environments because it, it was just that, you know, for me, my whole life has been that, you know, I had lived in some really tough neighborhoods and I've lived in some great neighborhoods. I've been to the worst schools. I've been to the best private schools. You know, I've been to going to, to Baptist church and then going, you know, where you're dancing and praising and, and shouting for the Lord. And then you come to the LDS church and it's reverence and silence and, and meditation, you know? And so navigating those two worlds is something that I've always done because those are the worlds that I've lived in. And so I, I've never been uncomfortable being in a new space or feeling like, gosh, I haven't done this before. Or am I the only one? Or that's what I've always known. So I definitely was not, um, there was no fear there for that. So when you started off 
uh, your your music career. Uh, I mean, what what would you consider your your first success? Um, I think okay. So this was the journey of what happened. Long story short, I was in California and I was in a man group, not a boy band because I don't do boy bands. My my band was a man group, <laughs> and and I just knew that like yeah, we're we're gonna be huge, we're gonna be famous, and you know. And my girlfriend at the time, she's my wife now. My girlfriend at the time was saying, "So do you have a backup plan?" And I'm like, "Backup plan? <laughs> have you heard my group?" you're welcome. Like, get on board, you know? And she's like, okay, well, let me just try to help you along. And so she, she got me a, a resume together and had me and, and, and had me go to these different, um, I want to say audition, but it's not an audition. I don't even know what you guys call them, you know, for your regular jobs. And I'm like, I go and I'm teaching third graders how to clap on time. And then that led to me working with this pop school and working with artists there. And then there was a reality show. Um, uh, that they needed an on-camera vocal coach. And I went and auditioned for that, and they loved me. And I was like, great. And so my job was to make sure that the artists could last all the way through and decide what songs they're going to sing. And so I did that for a number of shows. So I've worked on just about every reality show you can think of I probably worked on, and that was the beginning of it. And then it led to other pop artists. And, wow, so it seems like, I mean, you're just had a good streak going, you know, through, throughout yeah, your career, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Would, does that, does that come from uh, connections or, I mean, I know talent, you have to be talented, but do connections play a part in that? And do, do relationships, I guess is what I'm saying. Do relationships play, play a big part in that? Okay. So here's the thing. I, I, the truth is connections and relationships are more important than the talent. That is what's most important. But for my journey, it wasn't. But if I'm telling somebody else, I I witnessed it, that some I have people working on this job for this artist and they shouldn't be there, but they're the friend of whoever or the cousin of whoever or a favor. And that happens all the time. For me, what got me through my journey is I've always known what needs to be. Like, I always feel like I know how things should be. And that is rare. Most people are indecisive or don't want to take the fall. Right. You know, and they kind of like uh-huh. want to ask the room and like go with the majority. Right. But or I they was have always t- someone who was like, yeah. Or yeah, they have too many interests, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And so I, I just found that, um, like you were saying, I, I've, I've had a long streak of luck where I was right with this call with this artist. I was right with this show, right with this direction, right with this style for this artist. Choosing this artist, yes, they were the ones who went on and, you know, and so knowing, if you just if you have a belief that you feel like you know what should be, you've got to go with it. You've got to go with it because that's that's always paid off for me. So when did that hit you? Was that something you've always had or did that hit you at a certain point in time where you knew what you wanted to do? Um, the, the personality trait of feeling like I always know what should be done is something that's always been with me. I got that from my mom. You know, she always had knew exactly what, whether from the outside world, it looks like the right thing or not. There was zero question with her, what the next steps were for her and her family. My mom really led our family that way, you know, and my dad was like the consistent solid piece. And my mom was driving us forward. And that's always been a part of me is knowing what needed to be done. So like with this movie, his name is Green Flake. I just knew after I finished learning, like this is a film. I need to make it. 
and we need to make it in three months. Like, okay, three months we're going to be shooting. And then people are like, well, no, 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 that's not the way it works. You have to – I'm like, oh, no, no, no. That's the way this is going to work. And I just knew that that's what needed to happen. And so I've always been that way. The way you're you're explaining it is kind of not necessarily like you have a vision of I'm going to be this and I need to become this. It's more as when things hit you, you have this ability to decide this is what needs to happen for me. Is is that is yeah. that kind of how how it, how you're explaining it? So that's exactly what it is. But the, here's the thing, though: when you do act on what you think you're supposed to be doing, people follow. They fall in line. You know, it's it, it it's not. It, people want to follow what they believe is going to happen. And so if you truly are moving in that direction, then it's not so hard to tell, how am I going to get this person? How am I going to get that? No, you just get moving and make sure that you finish the job and people will fall in line. And that's what's happened. Would you say that there was much of a conflict, at, if any at all, when you decided, hey, I need to do a, I need to do a film now? And now that you're... St- thinking of going down that road, is there ever that conflict in your mind between filmmaker and uh, music maker? Um, no, I, I just like, there's, I haven't seen the struggles that I've had to get to this point until I look back. And then I'm like, oh, look at that. You, know, you see the buildings falling behind you. And, and I'm like, wow, I had no idea. You know, like I've always been so focused on what I needed to get done that a door closed was not a door closed. It was just needed to be opened, you know, open it or move and open this door, keep moving, shift, move, boom, adjust, you know. And so if I did focus on the the struggles or the the nose or the thing, the setbacks, I, I'm sure I would have been paralyzed, but I didn't even notice them at the time. That's a, that's really good insight there. Cause I mean, I think that happens a lot. People just get paralyzed with how much they have to do. And then also just how much is going wrong for them. And moving forward, that's, I mean, that's quite a good, that's quite a good ability to have to just move through all that. And so on that subject, I mean, you, you decided to do this film. His name is Green Flake. And I mean, how did, how did doors start opening for you? Well, there were miracles. Um, there were, there were miracles. I I knew that, um, what I needed to do, uh, for this film and telling this story, um, I needed the support of the church. Otherwise, um, I think that the normal saint might look and say, like, wait, is this okay? Can we, can I watch this? Is the church okay with this? Like, we've never talked about that, you know? And and people wouldn't know how to receive it. And so I I wasn't sure how that was going to happen until I did a screening and I'm in Salt Lake City and I see Elder Rasband and his wife walking on the street and they have masks on. And so I was just kind of guessing, uh, but wow. Was a, so I went and approached him and I told him, Hey, I made this movie and this monument, but I need, it has to be, I need the support of you and temple square and then all, all the things that needs. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. Well, 
let's slow down. Write me a letter. I'm like, letter? Well, I'm here now. Let's, let's like, okay, well, we need official document. I'm like, okay. And so we took a picture. I wrote the letter. And he, the next week, I had another, uh, it was a concert that I was doing to promote the release of the film. And then that literally seven days later, I see a man walking. I'm like, gosh, that looks like Elder Gong. And it was Elder Gong. I pull over and I'm like, hey, uh, my name is Maui and I get to talking to him. And he's like, oh, yes, we were just talking about you this week. I'm like, oh, so you know, so yeah, the film and everything. Love it. Wonderful what you're doing. These things take time, but thank you. Keep going. I'm like, okay. And then the following week, I felt an impression to be in Salt Lake again. And this is now Friday, the next Friday and the third Friday. And so you like, just went up to Salt Lake and just kind of hung out? I just, I, this is the thing. Yes. Well, here's the thing. At 530, I met those two uh, apostles at 532. And then I felt this spiritual impression that I needed to be there again at Friday at 532. And so long story short, I tell my wife I have a meeting and she's like, with who? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, okay, whatever. You know, and I go fly to Salt Lake and I'm standing there in the rain. It's pouring rain and there's nobody outside and it's 530. And I'm like, oh my gosh, come on, come on. And then 532, click. And then a man pulls up and a man in a suit gets out of the car and stand on, stands under a tree about 20 yards from me. And it's just me and him on the whole street, nobody out. And he's standing under the tree like I am, shading from the rain. And I go up to him and I talk to him and it's Bishop Casse, you know, it's the presiding bishop of the church. And we talk about the film and he tells me everything that they've been, they've learned and, and what they love. And this is wonderful. Like they, what they've learned from what I'm doing, not like I'm teaching them, but like, you know, what they've learned about my journey. And, and he was just so happy about it. And he said it, it feels like love. And I'll never forget that. And he said, you know. And that's a hard thing to do when you're talking about race and enslavement and priesthood and black people in the church to, for, to feel like love. That's not normal. But these miracles were all a part of my journey. And so um, not, not everyone's going to have these massive miracles like that, but there will be miracles that will show you that the Lord is directing your path. And we have to be aware of those. I mean, I live in the Salt Lake area and I never run into an apostle or anyone from the church. I mean, I know, you know, they live around in various areas, but this just doesn't happen. It's it's not like a normal thing. You just go up there and be like, I'm going to go up there. And then you run into an apostle or, yeah. or something. So that's, that is pretty cool. I, <laughs> that's, that's an amazing story. So, I mean, wow. Was there, was there any point though, during this journey of making this film that it looked like it might not work out. Oh, I mean, honestly, every day looked like it was not going to work out, but it didn't change the fact that it was going to work out. Um, like what, what it looked like didn't, didn't matter. Like, yes, of course it looked like it's not going to work out when I, it's three weeks before we're about to shoot. I don't have a crew. I don't have a location because the location I was going to have is now gone because I had a certain setup. The equipment that I was going to use from one of my clients, he can't because now it's stuck. The, the equipment's stuck in Russia. It all looked like, you know, and this was every day there was something, but that didn't change the fact that it's going to happen. It's just, okay, then there must be another something. Okay. So I just had to keep shifting and adjusting and, and moving forward. And so it, just because it looks like it's not going to happen doesn't mean it's not. 
It just means that's the journey because you cannot judge whether or not you're going to get there by how hard the path is to get there. It shouldn't be easy. What would you say got you through all of that? Um, I think what got me through the hard days, things where it looked like nothing is going to happen. It's all going to fall apart. How am I going to, you know, we don't, I had zero money raised at the time. I just had a promise of $25,000 three weeks before about how, um, what got me through that was knowing that these stories need to be told and that there's brothers and sisters that look like me, that look like Brigham Young, that look like Green Flake, you know, like all the whole spectrum and descendants everywhere from within want this. We're all in this together. And so it's, it's hard work. It's unity that we all want. We all want to tell these stories. We want to learn more, especially recently. We're all in a space where we want to know more. What, what haven't I seen? What, about, what was I missing? And so knowing that I had brothers and sisters of all cultures and races that wanted these stories to be told was my motivation. It gave me peace because I wasn't alone. And it wasn't just black people doing black stories. It was white, black, and everything in between pushing to make this a reality. So that's what strengthened me. Well, and I can tell you that after watching your film, that uh, what the presiding bishop said... It feels like love, yeah. That's exactly what I felt throughout the film. I mean, as, as you said, it, it had things in it that we needed to know about. It's stuff we need to know. But uh, the whole thing just had a loving tone. And when it was over, that's, <clears throat> that's what I felt was love. That means so much. Absolutely. That means so much because, you know, it, I wanted to make sure that in the end, after the film was over, it wasn't, I didn't want to take, make anybody feel whatever, let them have their own experience and sit and talk with their family or friend and, and I just hope that everyone has the opportunity to see the movie because it just opens a whole door, a whole you know, like there's a whole spectrum of things we hadn't known about. And it, it does fill us with love and it brings us closer together. I don't know how we're able to talk about these hard things and it brings us closer together, but it's doing it. And so, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Mally. It's it's just been a pleasure talking with you and, and even reminiscing about your film. I mean, it's just brought back good emotions, you know, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, what What is in the future for you? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, you know, to our earlier conversation in the beginning, I have caught the bug. You know, there are more stories to be told and telling them through film and music is a way that the spirit can live in the message. And I'll be telling more stories. Right now, my focus is Elijah Abel. Elijah Abel being one of the first priesthood holders in the early church in the 1830s, he held the priesthood. And so we're going to follow his life and and how did, did he lose the priesthood? Did he keep the priesthood? When did it go away? When did it come back? The whys? All that can be answered through following his life. So, so for our listeners out there, where can they find Greenflake? Okay, so you can get the movie at greenflakemovie.com. There'll be a link that can take you there or just go to Deseret Book. Dot com. 
So greenflakemovie.com will keep you up on all the things that I'm doing and what's next. And you can watch other performances and the dedication for the monument, all those things. But um, DesireBook.com is selling the DVDs right now. Awesome. So make sure that you guys see it. It's a fantastic movie. And again, it just it just fills you with great emotions. And uh, thanks again, Mally, for coming on the show. It's been wonderful talking with you. This has been another episode of The Path of Art, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Path of Art. If you or someone you know is creative and would like to tell your story, reach out to me at rmeeks at ksl.com. I might feature you on the show. If you liked our conversation, please make sure you follow the show and give us a five-star rating and review. It really does help people to discover the show. Also, make sure you follow The Path of Art podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.